we're in John chapter 3. We're going to be finishing up um, second half of John 3 as we've been walking just verse by verse through this gospel together. If you haven't been with us, I invite you to have your copy digitally in print in front of you. The verses aren't on the screen intentionally so that we're each engaging with God's word. If you need a copy physically, uh, you can go back out in the foyer to the left. There's a little bookshelf uh, that can be your copy as well. My dad uh, was the children's pastor here at Peninsula Grace back in the 90s. Here he is. He's the one with the beard. Uh, Oh, and here he is, uh, rocking Salty the Singing Songbook. Uh, As I said, it was the 90s, squarely the 90s. Uh, I was his child and in his children's ministry, so he was pastor dad. And he had developed a weeknight program called Sports Spectacular, which combined our love for Jesus and football and basketball and baseball. Now, dad divided us up into two teams. Uh, purple and teal. Like I said, it was the 90s, okay? So, uh, and then from my best recollections, the teal team looked like this. Um, they had Chet Nettles, his mom's here today. Uh, they had Michael Burmeister, I know. Uh, Michael Jordan, I think, even Michael Phelps. Like, they just had all the Michaels. And the teal team uh, looked a little more like this. Uh, <laughs> Island of Misfits, right? Uh, three Stooges, a slice of meatloaf, and me uh, made up the teal team. I was jealous with a capital wham. I wanted to be on the purple team, not the stinking teal team, right? And what I was experiencing as I was on the vastly inferior team was jealousy. Um, and we've all experienced jealousy, just like this poor little guy right here. Um, you know, when, when, I, um, when I was first stepping into leadership here at the church, uh, our church was recovering from a big fallout. And so we were hemorrhaging people week after week after week. At the same time, there was a church just down the street that was exploding. It was thriving. So I'm, I'm watching them grow, grow, grow as we shrink, shrink, shrink. And that was hard for me. Uh, stepping into this role, I, I was jealous for the success of that pastor and that church. And we, we all experience these feelings of jealousy. Maybe you're scrolling through Instagram and you see that perfect family photo where everybody's acting like they just heard the funniest thing imaginable. Um, and, and you say, I wish my family was always laughing hysterically ensconced in perfect light with leaves falling on us every season, right? <laughs> I, I, you wince at a, at a co-worker's success or attaboy from the boss that didn't come to you. Uh, maybe it's your, another friend getting married and you're still single. Maybe it's scrolling through Facebook and you see that family that's in Hawaii mid-January and you're freezing and your furnace won't work here in Soldatna. Um, and this can hurt, right? And this can, this can hurt deep. And, and the more that we feed that jealousy, we see that it only makes things worse. So what I want us to consider this morning in God's word is you know, what, what is jealousy? What's the, what's the root of it? Like, where does it come from? And then ultimately, what is the remedy for that jealousy in our lives? I, I see those questions being addressed in our text this morning. So first, the root of jealousy, John uh, chapter 3. We're going to first look at the comparison trap that John's disciples fall into, and that I think we can fall into together as well. So it starts off, everything's hunky-dory. we got balloons and streamers. We're having a baptism party. Look at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and and baptized 
Verse 23, John also, John the Baptist, was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. That's, of course, to be hard to baptize when you're in prison, right? This is giving us a, a timeline of where we are. So we have Jesus and his disciples baptizing and John and his disciples baptizing. It says there's plenty of water there, which is uh, worthy of being noted. You're in the desert. So there is a place where the river's flowing and you could baptize. That's where you're going to find these people. So it goes on. But, but quickly, we turn from a baptism party where everybody's having a good time to a, more of a baptism rap battle. Look at verse 25. Then a, a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, and that's Jesus, and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, we don't know. It says they were arguing with the Jew about purification. And, we, and it's, it doesn't tell us any more than that. But based on the context and, and the follow-up comment from John's disciples, um, it, it seems as though it's, they're somehow re relating Jesus' baptizing to John's baptizing. And they're arguing about it. And, and John's, but John's disciples don't seem to appreciate that everyone is going to Jesus, which, of course, is an exaggeration because they are still baptizing. So somebody's with them. But they don't like this. And so this kind of rap battle baptism starts going back and forth. And you imagine John's disciples competing with Jesus' disciples. And, oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to hold mine by the ankle one-handed with no eyes, right? They're going to compare who can bat, uh, baptize better. But what we see in their heart here is jealousy. They're jealous. Now, usually when we think of the term jealousy, we think of it in a negative light. But inherently, it is not sinful, although it can lead us to sin. The word jealous is, comes from the same Greek root word for zealous. So you can be zealous or passionate about a person, a sports team, right, a, a, a situation. Jealousy is, is an emotion, and, and particularly it's a, a social emotion, meaning uh, it requires more than one person, like shame or embarrassment. It's inherently uh, social in, in nature. The most help, one of the most helpful definitions I ran across this week was that a, a, a jealousy is an emotional response an emotional response to the threat of losing a valued relationship to a rival. Uh, the threat, feeling threatened that you're going to lose a relationship to a rival. Or, you could say it this way, it's an intolerance of unfaithfulness or rivalry. To not tolerate unfaithfulness in your life. Now, like with anger, jealousy becomes sinful. And there's a couple different ways that it can become sinful. It can become sinful, number one, when it controls us. So when we foster that emotion and we let it control us, we will react sinfully. This is what Paul says when he says, in your anger, do not sin. He didn't say it's sinful to be angry, but it's sinful when that anger controls us. And it'd be the same thing with jealousy. In your jealousy, do not sin. Don't let it control you. But then also, it can be wrong or sinful when it has the wrong object. So it's not wrong for me to be jealous for my wife's faithfulness to me as her husband. That's right and good. It would actually be wrong for me to be indifferent if she was cheating on me. But if I let it control me and I spin out like every time she's not looking into my eyes and even paranoid about her spending time with her friends or I try to control her and lock her into the bathroom until death do us part, right? Call the cops, please. Somebody call the cops. Or if I'm jealous over uh, the faithfulness of other women in my life who are not my wife, right? That would also be sinful. God himself describes himself as being jealous. 
in the second of the Ten Commandments. He says this, we must not, uh, you must not bow down to them, other gods, or worship them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate, remember we don't tolerate unfaithfulness, he will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. So God says it is right and good for everybody to worship me faithfully. He is due that, that faithfulness of worship. So John and his disciples are falling into this comparison trap. This is the, in, they're, they're not tolerate, and they're not tolerating losing these baptizees over to Jesus and, and, and his disciples. Jealousy is controlling them. And what do we see in the story? It's, it's causing sin. There are disputes and arguments starting to break out uh, over this. Comparison is always, always a losing game. It's going to lead to one of two things in your life. You're either going to see them as higher up the ladder from you and be jealous, or you'll see yourself higher up on the ladder than them and be judgmental. It's either you're better than me or I'm better than you. See, at the root of sinful jealousy is, is pride, which is at the root of all sin. And, and C.S. Lewis said it this way, pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person. So, so it's inherently, Tim Keller says, pride is inherently comparative. So jealousy comes when we're comparing and we, are, we find ourselves wanting. It's, it's not just that I want a certain amount of something or someone. It's I want more than you. So that we ask ourselves um, through the Holy Spirit this morning, where do we find ourselves falling into this comparison trap? Maybe it's uh, physical appearance, comparing your looks with somebody else's. Maybe it's money. Financial status, job status, family situation, maybe it's your intelligence, even your spirituality, as I said earlier with, with my uh, experience in the church. Now, what's at the heart of this trap? Why are we jealous? What's, what's going on here? Well, for that, we look at the next part of, of, the, of the text, coveting the groom's tux. So I didn't get married until I was 35 years old. Always the groomsman, never the groom, right? And always, even as a pastor. So I, I was, I was a, a groomsman seven times. Here I am. Uh, just staring at my brother, and, 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 then, and then here am I uh, marrying my sister and, and her now husband, Janelle and Ryan. So 15, I, I was counting it up, I married 15 other couples before I was married. I, I stood in the groom's line seven times before I was married, and it was easy to stand there, and in the words of Napoleon Dynamite, think, lucky, right? <laughs> I'm so happy for you. And, and my jealousy often prevented me from unadulterated joy for my friends or, or my family getting married. Just like it's preventing John's disciples from joy here, but not John himself. Look at, look at this, uh, verse 27. We see coveting or jealousy comes when we elevate our stuff and our station. Look at verse 27. John responded. So his, his disciples say, John, they're all leaving us. What's happening? And here's what John says. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. No one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. So John's disciples are coveting Jesus' fame, which meant that they were discontent in their own situation, their own station of life. Whereas John here says, Man, everything I have is a gift from God. Discontent says God you don't know what you're doing. 
says, God, you haven't given me enough. Implying what? I know better than God, right? And this is, this is idolatry. When we place our satisfaction in something other than God, when we say to God, you're not sufficient, this is the idolatry, the jealousy that he was referring to in the second commandment. God is jealous. But listen, not because God's petty and not because he's fearful of losing his throne to another, but because he knows the best thing for us and the whole universe is for him to be God, to be the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God. Because this is reality. I love Romans 11, the crescendo. It says, for who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? Who could tell God, you're not giving me what I need? You're not satisfying me. Who has given him so much that he needs to pay back? God, you owe this to me. He says, no, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. How do we view our gifts, the stuff, our possessions, our station, like in life, our circumstances? Do, do I hold it with a closed fist and say, I earned these things, I'm owed these things by my God? Or do I hold them with an open hand and say, I'm receiving these things as a gift and I'm graciously stewarding it by his power back to his glory? We elevate our stuff and our station, but then ultimately, we're going to see in the next two verses, we elevate our own identity. Look at verse 28. John says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah. I've been sent ahead of him. That takes us back to chapter 1. He said, John the Baptist was not the light. He is a witness to the light. Verse 29, he who has the bride, he's referring to Jesus, he who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, that's John the Baptist, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So, and here's the result, this joy of mine is complete. So the groom's friend, this was an ancient equivalent of a best man. Um, they would, or, and they, they, and in, in those days, they were responsible for organizing all the details. They presided over the wedding. We now job that out to a wedding planner. But John basically, I'm the, he said, I'm the best man and I'm J-Lo, right? I'm like running the, the whole thing. And his greatest joy, he says, was watching the ceremony proceed without a problem, right? That it all comes together. And what's supposed to happen, happens. And he goes, here comes the bride. And he says, my joy is in her joy gazing into the eyes of the bridegroom. We know that's many people's favorite part of the wedding. When the doors open and the bride comes walking down the aisle. And everybody's watching the groom watch the bride, right? They want to see the smile on their face or the, the tears like in this guy's eyes. Or I think this guy might actually be regretting a few things. I'm not sure. But um, we, 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 John's saying, my joy is found in knowing that the groom, Jesus, and his bride, the people he came to rescue, have found each other. They are united. Jesus is gathering his bride, which includes John himself, right? He's in that, he's in that bride as well. And I love then how he says, so, if, if that's my, where my joy is, he said, so, this joy of mine is complete. This joy of mine is complete. This is his God-given ministry, and it was successful. That Jesus is being united with his people. John's disciples are getting spicy about Jesus gathering his disciples, but John is doing backflips. This is the point. This is where joy is. And we know, you've probably heard it said before, that comparison is the thief of joy, right? When we compare with ourselves with one another, 
that does not lead to, to, to joy and contentment. But John here is not letting his joy be thieved. He found his joy in Jesus and in Jesus finding his bride. So ask yourself this morning, where are you looking for joy? Honestly, before the Lord, are we looking for it in how others see me, respond to me, esteem me, or is my joy only found in people seeing the person of Jesus? But of course, our joy is only going to be in others beholding the bridegroom when that's where our joy is as well, right? I mean, this summer, uh, my sabbatical was down at Crater Lake, and one of the most beautiful pla- like, places I've ever been in my life, and I remember driving around the rim and finally seeing, like, an outlooking of it, and I almost crashed my car. Like, it was so amazing, to, with the view that you had, this beautiful, pristine lake in the middle of the mountains. And, and so, imagine me walking around to all the other tourists and going, guys, have you seen it? Like, look at my tan. You guys want to get a picture of me and like everybody in your family can just see the, the, the main attraction? No, of course not, right? Like I was so smitten with this view of Crater Lake that I'm going to be like, did you guys drive up around the corner? You get an even better view up there, kind of a top-down thing. You can see the island. Like when, when my joy is in the view of the lake, then I'm going to be finding joy in other people experiencing that as well. But where am I finding my joy? And if I'm trying to find it anywhere else than the bridegroom himself, it's going to lead to disappointment. This is where John found his joy. But, but how, do we, how do we get there? We know, man, our, our, we see the jealousy in our hearts, but what's the remedy for it? Let's look at that in the next part of the story. First of all, it comes from elevating my Savior. Elevating my Savior is what brings joy. And, and uh, verse 30 here is probably the most famous verse in, in our passage. He says, he, referring to Jesus, John's saying, he must increase, but I, John the Baptist, must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. This is potentially, um, man, one of my favorite verses in, in the Bible, a, a really a summary of the gospel, right? He must increase, I must decrease. Or we could say it, not I, but Christ in me. He must increase. Jesus must increase. And that doesn't mean that Jesus needs to, like, put on weight, right? He must increase. Uh, nor does it mean that he must become greater, right? Like, Jesus is not saying, well, Jesus is not quite as great as he could be. The, the point here is that it's our vision of him that must increase to see him as he is. That our esteem for him, our love for him, our worship of him must increase, which is our best and his glory. This is, his esteem must increase our elevation of him in, in our own estimation, right? And this includes how, how we see Jesus directly relates to how we see ourselves. C.S. Lewis famously said, humility, which is the opposite of pride, which is at the heart of, of comparison, right? So humility is not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. When I think less of myself, I'm so awful, I'm so stupid, I'm so ugly, I'm so terrible, that's still self-obsession, I've often said it this way, that insecurity and arrogance are just different sides of the same pride coin. Whether I'm thinking about how great I am or how terrible I am, I'm still consumed with thoughts about me. So thinking less of myself is really still just thinking more of myself. And I want to caution us because martyrdom is a seductive mistress. This idea of woe is me and pity me. And man, bad things happen to us. But when we nurse that... It only leads to harmful paths. So we are called to esteem him in our own estimation. Uh, and paradoxically, the best thing for me is actually less of me. And I've seen this in my own life. And the more I make it all about Justin, the more miserable of a person I am. And that's the irony. 
Right? When I put myself first, and Jesus said, you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if I make life all about him, because it is, I will, that's where I find true, lasting joy. So, so and here, here's the process. As I behold Jesus more and more and more in that very process, I'm thinking of myself less and less and less. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're also to esteem him, uh, to elevate our Savior in the estimation of others. So, so this has significant ramifications of how we see other people too. I'm not sizing you up, comparing you with me, right? But I interact with others, um, and, and, and as I do so, my passions should be, do they walk away from interaction with me with a higher view of who Jesus is? And that even when they saw me loving them, uh, that they would simply be seeing Christ in me, that they would be loved by me the way Jesus loves them, and that would ultimately glorify his name. We are to be zealous to be jealous for what God is zealous and jealous for. And that is the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior over all. This call to, to, to a remedy for jealousy is, is partly, next we see here, is seeing reality as it really is, right? Seeing reality, and the result will be love. So jealousy can be deceptive. Um, it is deceptive. And that's our, our own flesh, our old nature of sin, and, the, and Satan. They're lying to us. They're pretending to be our friends and foster self-pity. In the process, they're seeking to convince us that someone else, that some other situation has the all-satisfying happiness that we crave. That the grass in their lawn really is greener than ours. But this is a lie, right? Like back to, and if I, let's say I would have been put on the purple team in Sports Spectacular, would I have been happy for the rest of my life? Like, I don't remember a single result from the games of Purple Team versus Teal Team. I was in third grade, right? It's a lie to say, man, if there are more people coming to my church, that I will be happier. It's a lie to say, if there's more money in my bank account or my Roth IRA, I will feel more secure. It's a lie to say, man, if I have more children, I'll be happier. If I, if, I, if I have less pounds on the scale when I step onto it, I'll finally be content. The truth is, my God is enough. He is love. And he knows infinitely more than I do. That he is in control, all-powerful, and for me. He's the giver of all good things. And so like John, I can receive the stuff that he gives me, the station that he's placed me in open-handedly as good gifts from him and to be completely satisfied with him and him alone, loving him as he is due. But how do I actually live like this? Because if I'm honest, like that's, that's not my heart like John's, right? In fact, op often it's the opposite, that I'm trying to increase myself and not Jesus. And I live in the lie and I don't love him. So what's the way out? We've got to refocus our, our, our hearts and our eyes on what is true. So look at verse 31. It says here, the one, and some say that this is John continuing to talk, and some say this is John, the a disciple who's writing this, kind of giving a summary. But either way, the one who comes from above is above all or is superior to all, other translations say. The one who is from earth, and most think this is John referring to himself, is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So John says, look, I'm from earth, 
And if you're just coming to me, like I'm limited in my resource and what I can offer you. If you want true life, it's got to come from a better source. It's got to come from above. And this is the same exact phrase he used with Nicodemus back in verse 3 that Pastor Ross walked us through last week. Remember he said, if you want to be born again, right? If you, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. That word born again is the same phrase as from above. You need a, a different life source. It's not going to be me, right? It's got to come from the one who comes from above. So who is that? Look at verse 32. He, Jesus, testifies to what he's seen and heard. He's with God. He's seen God. He knows God. He's heard from his father. And now he's coming down to tell us about him. Verse 33, the one who has accepted Jesus' testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the spirit without measure. So we see the Trinity here in all of its glory. That God, Jesus was with the Father, seeing and hearing from him, and now he's coming to earth telling us who God is, what he's seen and heard. So he is the word made flesh, he has the very words of God, and he has the whole, it says God gave Jesus his spirit without measure. So here is God's full word in Jesus, God's full life in Jesus. And so if we reject who Jesus says that he is, well, we're rejecting God himself which is to decrease God and Jesus and to increase. Look on to verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. And here we see the beauty of the love of the Trinity within itself, father, son, and spirit. So Jesus came to model um, here on earth perfect love with the father he says my father loves me and i love my father and he has given all things into my hands modeling that whatever i have whatever lot i've been given comes from my father and i can trust that jesus has aligned himself before his father in reality and what is he experiencing here a love relationship with his dad the reality is jesus is above all all things have been placed in his hands. Our call is to align ourselves with that reality. How do we do that? Well, for that, we, we look at the last verse. Believing in the Son brings life. Believing in the Son brings life. Verse, verse 36, last verse of the, of the chapter. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son, it ends on a sober warning here. The one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains or abides, resides on him. So our 19-month-old daughter, Lucy, fine, I'll put up another picture. She often lives misaligned with reality, right? Like she thinks she can just run off of anything, jump off of anything, climb up everything, and just defies the reality of gravity. And it often leads to her own destruction, right? And when we, when we reject who Jesus claims that he is, when we try to place ourselves above the one who is above all, we're out of touch with reality. And it similarly, similarly leads to a path of death and destruction. Life, joy, love are only going to be found in believing who he claims to be. But I love how this story concludes with the gospel, with the good news. Notice it said... The one who believes in the Son has life. How do we access this kind of life? It's only going to be through faith 
in Jesus. The story doesn't point us toward just try harder to be content. Like do better at being grateful. Write down a list of all the things you're grateful for. Don't you see it? Be content. Sell all your possessions. John doesn't point us toward moralism. He points us to the Savior. Verse 36 says, belief in Christ is where we find true life. And this is the gospel, that he decreased so we could increase. That Jesus came to replace our old earthly life of jealousy and give us a new life of selfless love. And how did he accomplish that? By giving us his own selfless life. He laid it on the cross that the only one who ever lived that deserved to increase decreased in our place so that we could be raised with him and receive that same measureless spirit and be welcomed into a love relationship with the Father. And if we simply believe that he died for us, that he was raised for us, we can have that life with him right now and forever. That's why it's eternal life. And, and now, as I decrease, I die to self. But Jesus increases in me, and I can trust the Father's love. And only in him can I learn to receive with open hand the stuff and the station that he has for me today. Because you give and you take away. But my heart can choose, can learn to say, blessed be your name in all situations. So, so how, do, how does this play out in, in day-to-day life? Like, how do we increase like how do we that sounds good but like how do we walk in? how do i walk in that well two things i would call us to here at the end we need to recalibrate our hearts to reality to recall recalibrate our hearts to jesus who is ultimate reality the logos um when i when i substitute teach we use a little phrase to get everybody's attention i say one two three eyes on me and then they say all right so a couple people who still are in school uh one two eyes on you right so the kids are chaotic, and they're, they're playing around, they're, they're misbehaving, they're doing all and I'm trying to realign them to where they're supposed to be, right? Eyes on me, of course, right? So they say, I, one, two, eyes on you, and they all come back, eyesight back, recalibrated to teacher, back on track. And we need the same thing in our own hearts, that we're distracted, we're stressed out, we're angry, we're jealous, we're, and we need to recalibrate, one, two, Jesus, eyes on you. So how do, how do we do that? I know for me, that has to happen on a daily basis. That, that what my default is my eyes on myself. And so I've got to recalibrate. One, two, eyes on you. One of the practices that helps me just starting each day um, is taking two minutes. And I've found it to be helpful to go outside, which is getting trickier and trickier on days like this. Um, but man, to stand outside for a few minutes in the stillness and silence and to simply with palms out say, Father, I'm yours. This is the day you've given to me. This is the day you made. And you made me for this day. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I will receive from you, my good, powerful, loving God, whatever you give me for today. May I be singing praises to you when the evening comes. I need, I need that heart recalibration. I spend that first part of my morning with my eyes on Jesus in the written word. That's why we go back to this thing. Not to make God happy with us because I got to re- realign my eyes to Jesus. The written word shows me the living word. That's why we say, no matter what page you're on in the Bible, the Bible is one story that leads to Jesus. So to see whatever text you're on in that morning is to see Christ as God wants to reveal him to you that day. We we recalibrate our hearts with our eyes on on his word. And I also need checkpoints throughout the day. 
I know for me, one of the things that's helpful is put little reminders in my phone that pop up at me at lunchtime or in the afternoon when I'm getting hangry, right? And, and to be able to recalibrate my heart. Maybe there's a piece of scripture that I'm memorizing or a truth I'm, I'm hanging on to or a prayer. And just to take a minute there, recalibrate my eyes, do a little mini eye exam. Where, where, where is my focus? Because we all have plenty of distractions throughout the day, right? Busyness of life, children, uh, our own hearts that are prone to wander. And make no mistake, guys, this is a spiritual battle we're engaged in. It's lies versus truth on a moment-to-moment basis. And our old sin nature and Satan have no interest in us putting our eyes on Jesus. So he is going to unload his full arsenal. And that's why we need to keep our eyes on him. And that's also why, number two, we cannot do this alone. That we are called to recalibrate in the community that Jesus has given to us, the bride, his body. Because maybe some of you are coming in this morning and you're going, I don't even know how to get my eyes on Jesus. Like, even if I make time for him, I'm just kind of staring at the wall and I'm hearing nothing but white noise. How, how do I do that? Well, in the words of the, the ancient philosopher Michael Jackson, you are not alone. <laughs> We're called to do this together. Every Thursday morning, I meet with two or three guys and we help each other put our eyes back on Jesus. We confess our sin where our eyes have been off. We, we help each other understand the Bible, which can sometimes be super confusing. How do we grow into, into Christ's likeness? How do we keep our eyes on him, right? We need one another in that. It's a gift that he's given me, given us as a body of Christ. And maybe some of you are like, well, I, I've been coming to Sunday service, but I have no idea how to find that kind of relationship. I mean, come and, come and tag me afterward. I'd love to point you in the right direction or underneath the offering box over there by the cross on the wall. There's a little contact card that you can say, I, I just, how to, help me plug in. Help me find that kind of community. That's what we're here to do. And I'd also encourage you, man, as you come to other people, how are we coming to them? Are we coming with the idea of how they see me or how they would see Jesus? And I mean, I struggle with this every single conversation. Do I want them looking at me or do I really want them looking at him? So a couple of practical pieces of advice I would give, man, when you come, be slow to speak and be quick to listen. Hear their heart. And then help turn them to, to him. Say, let's pray about that together. Not because I'm so quick. Like I'm, I'm a fixer. So I want to just give them the right advice. Or I'm scared that I don't have the right advice. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to help you. Right? But, but we know the one who knows everything. So we pray together. Or I often say, we need to talk with our Bibles open. And maybe that's literal, right? Like you open your Bible. But it's not just like there's some magical powers that are come out of it. It's, it's to say, man, can we together, like you have a really good question. You're wrestling with a really hard thing. What does God have to say about that? Like what's his heart in that? Are we through prayer and his word turning together shoulder to shoulder to behold the Savior? I'm not their Savior and you're not mine. But we can turn together to the one who is. Whether we find ourselves on the purple team or whether we're on the teal team today, now our joy will only be made complete as we decrease and he has the increase. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. And, and, and Lord, I, I confess my own jealousy, the comparison trap that I fall into on a day-to-day basis. But I thank you that Jesus rose from the grave to free me from those sins, and to free me into a new life with you, a love relationship with you where I can be released from the chains of self-obsession and come to know Jesus as my life and my joy and my peace. Father, would you do that work in each of our hearts. That we all are standing on faulty foundations. And we know, Lord, when the trials come, 
or, 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 or when the glitter, the novelty fades on that new thing or that new relationship that we thought would make us happy, Lord, when the, our foundations crumble, even in your grace, you so often use that to let us fall back on Jesus, the only cornerstone that will give us secure footing today and forever. So, Father, as we respond to your word here, would you do that work in our hearts that only you can do? By your grace, would, would, would you help us decrease and Jesus increase in our vision? Father, turn our hearts fully to the person of Jesus. It's in his name that we look. It's in his name that we find joy. It's in his name that all God's people said.